Miss the show? No worries on point on the podcast. When it comes to COVID, why do those in charge care about those killed by the virus than those killed by lockdown measures? An interesting report coming out by StatsCan pretty much lays out the numbers, and it can't be denied. The cure has been about as deadly as the disease. Aaron O'Toole vowing action on climate change, but the party membership then steps on a rake and rejects the changing of language on climate change. What actually matters more, the language or the policy of solving it? And the Trudeau government launching sanctions against China over human rights violations against the Uyghur Muslims. But this is the least we can do. Will we get tougher? Let's get talking. You just don't ever get to point. By getting through to your point, do you understand? There is a point. At point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Well, it's unfortunate that we have these underground operations going on because we're 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 nearly there. This is a race against the clock to uh, vaccinate as many people as possible and to prevent the variants of concern from uh, growing exponentially. So what we're asking people to do is please be a bit more patient. Oh, they've been patient. And the only race businesses are in is to their destruction. How can they be blamed for going underground? Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, March 22nd. A big shout out birthday to my big old sis. She's older, by the way. Happy birthday to you, Sarah. What a difference uh, just a couple of days of nice weather makes. Not uh, not bad at all. What a great weekend, eh? Everybody out. You got the parks full of people. You know, streets were packed. I don't know where you were, but it was packed in the city. I managed to get out and clean up the dirt in my garden, which I always love to do. It just felt good, you know? Stretch the legs, not bundle up. And, um, and it certainly shows us how crucial it is that we as humans get to live life. You know, just be social, get some sunshine, soak up some fresh air. And uh, as I'm told now by the weather gurus, we're we're in for a really hot, warm spring, to which I say bring it. We kind of got robbed, uh, I think, last year when it was cold. But I think this uh, weekend also showed us how sick of lockdowns we are. There is no question a fatigue. It is palpable. Everyone you talk to, certainly if you're in the zones that have been in lockdown for gray for months, people are tired of it. And so you got the nice weather and it's coming. It's going to be very, very tough, if not impossible to keep people locked down. So we're done, as far as I'm concerned. I think business, business, I know businesses that are still locked down are done, and that's why we're hearing these stories and why we've been talking about in the news why you've got businesses like hairdressers going underground. I heard, I heard from a lot over the weekend, actually, because I had a gal who owns a salon on, the, on uh, Friday. I heard from a lot of uh, hairdressers who said, yeah, no, I can't survive any longer. I cannot survive. Never mind my business dying. I have no money. So they're quietly going underground, cutting hair, home to home of their clients. I mean, that is what you get when you have all these highly paid experts. And remember how highly paid they are. We learned that on Friday. I mean, making bad policy decisions, which aren't backed by data. You know, BC's got the same number of cases as as Toronto. They are wide open. I don't know why we're not doing what they're doing, but I guess these experts know more than me. But yeah, they're making these bad decisions and, um, you know, Toronto and the GTA, which have now been locked down for four months, you know, it's a nightmare for those who own the salons, the gyms and the restaurants. I mean, they aren't the culprit of spread, but they're the most punished of the group. And the experts 
what they have done with these measures is driven those businesses underground, which is, I think, way less safe than the safeguards they put in place. They spend all this money on PPE to make sure everyone was safe, and they can't do that. They can't use it. So I don't blame them one bit. I do not blame them one bit. I'm not condoning it, not telling people to go and do it, but I do not blame them one bit for picking up their scissors or whatever it is they have to do, boxing gloves and go uh, and do training. They have to survive. In fact, I, I suggest it now. Those uh, who have been closed down for 300 days, they shouldn't even have to pay property taxes municipally this year, for 2020 anyway. That, that is completely unfair. And I was thinking over the weekend, you know what a really great protest would be? Hairdressers or, uh, you know, if you're a boxing instructor, you should go to Costco's plat. Go, go to their parking lot early before the cars get there and take all the spots and just cut hair all day there. See how they like it when you take their business. Just take up all the parking spots. I thought that would be a great protest. Nonetheless, just my idea. But there is a cost to lockdowns, not just economic, not just mental, not just emotional, but it has killed people. And um, I read this over the weekend. It was a Stats Canada report, so not a sexy report. It barely got any attention. It actually came out uh, about, what are we, about two and a half weeks ago. It barely got any attention. And I was reading through this because it was sent to me by a doctor. And it proves that the lockdowns have taken lives and that we are picking winners and losers. It reveals, and you can read it for yourself, that between January 2020 to December 2020, there was a 5% hike in deaths that were not caused by COVID. 13,800 more people died in 2020, last year, younger people who died from the measures of the pandemic. And in the early days of the, the COVID uh, pandemic, the assumption was that anyone who died was 65 plus likely died because of underlying conditions in the virus. But the data that we're seeing now says, well, there was a 35% spike in deaths in the fall of 2020 under 65, and most, not all, more were men than women, but they died of things like undiagnosed illnesses. They didn't go to the doctor. They didn't go to the hospital. They missed things like heart disease, undiagnosed cancers, overdose was a big part of it, increased suicide. And StatsCan says the data is not complete, so those numbers really could go up. And we'll talk to the doctor one of those who has pushed back against the lockdowns and the cost of these lockdowns, which for whatever reason, our experts, quote unquote, they don't seem to care about the other deaths. We care so much about COVID death, COVID death, COVID death. Oh, someone committed suicide. Who cares? Oh, someone died of opiate. Oh, who cares? It's only about COVID right now. I, I don't understand. I don't understand the rationale, how we can be okay with one and not the other. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So we will talk about that. Big news in China, which we'll also talk about. It looks... Looks like finally the Trudeau government's waking up. The uh, two Michaels have been tried now. They await verdicts. But uh, Canada joined the U.S., U.K., and E.U. imposing sanctions on uh, four Chinese officials for human rights violations against Uyghur Muslims. So it is a bit of a flex after a whole lot of cowering, but they need to go a lot further. So I say they should. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the climate change catch that Aaron O'Toole found himself in the, uh, the weekend. He gave a, what I thought was a pretty good speech on Friday and basically said the debate is gone on this issue and we will have policy on it. And then the next day, the delegates got to vote, vote on some of the writing around climate change and they voted it down. What matters more, the policy being put forward or what we call it? So there's a whole lot of politics at play. It wasn't a great moment, but there's a whole lot of politics at play on this. And so we'll get into that. Alex Pearson on point. We've got a very busy show tonight on Global News Radio.
we often hear about the COVID cases and the COVID deaths. And I think we do a great disservice by just focusing on that. Because what about all the other deaths that this pandemic has caused that have nothing to do with the virus? You know, we're starting to hear about the collateral damage, the mental health issues, people not getting checked for other illnesses, things like heart disease or missed cancer diagnosis. And then over the weekend, I saw a Stats Canada report, which came out actually quite a while ago, and it should be getting a lot more attention than it is because what it states is that lockdowns are killing people. It doesn't use that language, but it certainly shows it in the numbers. It shows from January to mid-December 2020, there was an estimated 296,373 deaths in Canada, but that 13,798 deaths above that, so we're 13,798 deaths more than what we should have that are not related to the pandemic. So that's a 5% increase in deaths over that period. All we hear about are COVID deaths, but the StatsCan reports tells us that we're ignoring the deaths that COVID measures are creating. Let us bring in someone who will talk about this, Dr. Kwajo Kiramantang. He is an intensive and palliative care physician out of Ottawa. He also has a podcast called Solving Healthcare that you can dip into. Good to have you, doctor. Alex, it's always a pleasure. You actually sent me this, Satskin, and said, why are we not talking about this? It's a really good question. Um, why, why don't the quote-unquote experts seem to care about what we call collateral damage? I Honestly, I, am, I have no idea. I, it's been quite troubling throughout this pandemic to see some of the collateral damage and there not to be much in the way of comments and not, in the, not much in the way of resources or efforts to mitigate some of that. You know, like when we talk about child abuse, delayed cancer diagnosis, uh, domestic abuse, uh, mm-hmm. delayed presentations to hospital, um, all these impact not only are young but are old, um, there's, I would think, interventions we could do to try and mitigate some of these things. And we've been so COVID-focused, focused on the numbers that we're not, we're blind. We're not seeing all the, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, the collateral damage that uh, some of our measures have created. So um, I, I'm, I'm baffled. And I think one of the things that, um, you know, part of my job as an ICU doc is always to look at things more holistically. I'll have different specialties come in and put in their opinion, but ultimately I, I have to make the call on what's best for my patient. And maybe it's that lens, but we certainly need it a lot more when it comes to COVID response. Yeah, I mean, Stats Canada is not partisan. So, I mean, the numbers are there. All you have to do is look at them. And when you actually break down, it shows you that at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the numbers were that, you know, 65 plus generally were those who were dying of COVID thanks to underlying conditions. And then you move into the September to November range, and there are a couple of thousand deaths of much younger people. And it's from things like no cancer diagnosis or um, suicide, or a lot of them are opiate deaths. I mean, there are, are, are all these reasons, but it's it's not old people. It's young people. Mm-hmm. And you know, like it, as you said, it's younger younger people. There's times where I feel like interventions could be made. So, for example, you know, in terms of the mental illness, I think this is certainly, in my opinion, predictable. You know, what if we had subsidized mental health services? You know, what if we um, brought up the awareness to people that, hey, you know, if you're feeling ill, come to hospital. They're safe. We want you to. We want to see you. We want to make sure you have something, especially that's 
preventable from you from causing death. The earlier you, you see it, the better. Um, it, it's these are opportunities, and I got to tell you, Alex, too. Like the reason I'm I've tried to amplify this is because I was seeing this firsthand in the ICU, like mm-hmm. when during say uh, late, like before the second wave, for example. I was seeing more patients with overdoses than I was with COVID. I was seeing more patients that came in with substance abuse related uh, conditions. And lately I've been seeing people with uh, treatable conditions, like say their diabetes or their mm-hmm. uh, heart failure. And some of them, because of their mental state, they're not taking their meds. They're, they're almost more, um, I don't want to say like, it's like a protest, but it's almost like they're, they've given up. And as a result, yeah. end up in a hospital, and it's 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 discouraging, it's heartbreaking, and I just really want to make sure that this is known to the public. So once again, we could focus on actions. Yeah, I mean, we could be going into a third lockdown. That's what we're being told in the Toronto GTA area. I hope to God that does not happen. We have been locked down longer than anybody. I mean, it depends on who you talk to and where they are in the country, because people just kind of think we're just a bunch of whiners here in this particular area. But it's because we have been locked down now for so long that finally this weekend, we had a beautiful sunny weekend and the parks were packed. People were out. Just getting that dose of sunshine, I can't tell you how much of a difference it made just actually getting out and walking around and not, uh, you know, being locked down. But it is so crucial to basic health. You know what, Alex, dude, like, can you imagine the public health messaging? Like, I would love the focus being on what you can do, what you can do, how to, like, connect outside. You want to see your friends, go for a walk, do, do some exercises together. You want to support local business, eat at their restaurant. You know, like it's all would be such a great message, you know, and I think if we know the data, you know, in terms of like, say, for example, outdoor transmission, it's mm-hmm. ultra rare. It's safe to be outside. It's safe to be with your, uh, your family in that manner. Um, you know, and so like that kind of messaging and the other thing, too, I must say with lockdowns, if, if I might say so, you know, there's a lot of areas in the country, like if you look at British Columbia, yeah, that really kept their kids in school. They really uh, mitigate, uh, reduced the amount of restrictions because they went to where the problems are. You know, long-term right. care, they addressed that. They addressed the shelters that were areas of major spread, dealt with essential workers, attacked uh, the problem where the where the issues are. Uh, and like what I see in the in uh, Ontario, we keep doing the same thing over and over again mm-hmm. and expecting... Why is it? Why results. are we such an outlier? I mean, even Ottawa opened up sooner, but it just seems that those in charge of the Toronto GTA area are either ignorant to where the problems are, which we know are in the warehousing areas. We know they're having those outbreaks, but they, they yeah. won't change this strategy and they keep turning to lockdowns as the only measure. I, I, I just... It's baffling. I, I, I don't know. I think it's makers aren't, uh, you know, they they don't have some of that frontline experience. But honestly, if, as you said, go to where the problem is. So make sure that, you know, in those warehouses, they, public health is aware. They give them the, the proper infection prevention control measures. They have offer rapid testing. They offer paid leave so that, you know, they don't mm-hmm. come to, to, to work sick because they are worried about uh, not being able to put food on the table, like just the basics. And I, I just feel like we keep approaching things the same way 
and expecting different results. And this is what it really breaks my heart because as we talked about, there are consequences, long-term consequences to our actions. Um, yeah. So hopefully with the vaccine rollout, vaccinating our most vulnerable, we can really reduce our risk of spreading COVID and, and get back to normal life as soon as possible, open up the economy, have that connection with our families and our friends and get back to normal life. But um, yeah, I just, honestly, I really hope we can avoid another lockdown because I, I just think that uh, we can be more strategic. Yeah, well, there's there's very few of you in the medical community who are brave enough to speak out against uh, the lockdown measures and uh, and speak up. Um, you know, for other strategies. So I certainly hope people start listening because I got to be honest with you, doctor, in the GTA Toronto area, I don't think they're going to get any buy-in to a third lockdown, certainly if they close schools. So fingers crossed. Always appreciate your time on this because I know you're very busy. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Alex. That is Dr. Kwajo Karamantang, and uh, he is one of the outspoken doctors who comes up with solutions, not looking for automatic lockdowns. And by the way, if you want to listen to his podcast, it's called solving healthcare if you want kind of an outsider's view. Stay with us, Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. We've now fought and lost two elections against a carbon tax because voters did not think we were serious about addressing climate change. And I will not allow 338 candidates to defend against the lie from the Liberals that we are a party of climate change deniers. We will have a plan to address climate change. It will be comprehensive and it will be serious. That was Aaron O'Toole Friday stating that climate change is no longer a debate. It's a pretty good speech. Uh, He also said there will be policy to address it. And then, of course, the next day, party delegates voted against changing the language that climate change is real. They didn't vote against climate change policy. The policy already recognizes climate change. They just didn't think the wording needed to be changed. So it put O'Toole on the defensive. It's made for a lot of liberal attacks who are going wild today, because why wouldn't they? I mean, they want to not talk about General John Vance and all the other scandals that are going on with the Trudeau government, but it's given them a lot of fuel. Um, But O'Toole was pretty clear. He's coming out with climate change policy. It won't be a carbon tax. But what is more important, what the delegates voted for or what's put into policy? Jason Leader, President of Enterprise Canada. He's done a few of these conventions in his time. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I know the Foo Fitters there. I thought it was monkey wrench for a bit, you know, given <laughs> yeah, what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, so you've done a lot of these conventions. This was a somewhat of a self-inflicted wound. I mean, I, I don't even know why the issue is put up for vote, but it is what it is. The delegates, you know, do what they do. Um, but what I think is more important is what's in the policy yeah, I think well, I think even more important than that, but I couldn't agree more. And the policy is pretty clear. They've got a, a pretty good, robust view of climate change and what needs to be done. The, the leader is of the utmost importance here. He sets the direction. And I, I'm not going to pretend that that was the Conservative Party's finest hour on sort of Saturday, Sunday, as those results were coming in, because the party did a great disservice to the leader. And the truth is, this guy's only been in about six months. He gave a crackerjack speech on Friday night. He really did well. He performed well. He, you know, lost 10 pounds, got a suit that fit, um, got his marks and made a good speech. And, you know, a bunch of, you know, sort of our party members wanted to be a little bit petulant. They were mad about some of the issues coming into the convention and they wanted to lodge a protest vote. I get it. I understand it. But the truth is, 
I think O'Toole did get a message out that night <laughs> for whatever reason, or for, you know, no matter, no matter how you slice it, that he's actually going to do something about climate change, which I think was a surprise to a lot of people, um, you know, that who hadn't seen Aaron O'Toole before. So, uh, you know, listen, it's, it's, it, he made lemons out of lemon, lemonade out of lemons for sure. Yeah, and there's no question it gives, you know, uh, the pundits a lot to talk about uh, in the last couple of days. It certainly will give um, ministers in the Liberal side a lot to talk about, because bottom line is they don't want to talk about their own issues, which are vaccine, you know, uh, delivery. Uh, there's so many things that we could talk about, the Jonathan Vance uh, controversy. There's all so many little bits and pieces of what they don't want to talk about within their own government. Um, and so this just kind of feeds into that. Yeah, that's sort of my message to some of our party membership. Who and listen, I understand. Listen, when you're in you're in Alberta, um, you know I've been to Alberta plenty in the last couple of years. Uh, you know I helped run some campaigns there. Uh, the the economy is in, in is in the doldrums. It's mostly because the oil and gas industry is is in the tank. I understand um, sort of wanting to say, hey, bud, what about us? Like I, I totally get it. I, I actually um, our party uh, stands up for those 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 people in in Alberta, and they stand up for the issues. Um, that said. Um, you know, you sort of you tie one hand behind Aaron O'Toole's back in yeah. fighting the next election. I think people got to decide: Do you think it'd be better to have Aaron O'Toole in our party? I mean, do you think it'd be better to have Aaron O'Toole, or do you, where you want Justin Trudeau to keep going? Because that's the way we're headed if you keep attacking our leader. Yeah, it's almost like they just want to continually put rakes in front of them, and uh, you know, wonder what happens when they step on them. It's like you got a choice: either you you do what you can with the policy that's going to be put out. And, and, and frankly, you, you and I both know this is going to be decided Thursday when, when the Supreme Court hands out say, its decision on, on the carbon tax and if it's even legal or not. And then, you know, Aaron O'Toole will launch at some point a climate change policy. It won't be a carbon tax, but I don't know what it's going to like. But if it does appeal and have some appeal, it is dangerous for Mr. Trudeau because he has made a lot of missteps with this pandemic and there are a lot of issues. Um, that need to be addressed. And so if he can put together a climate change policy that um, takes the card off for the Liberals, that's really what counts. The campaigns count, not necessarily the conventions. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll be a long, long, uh, long since memory by the time we get to a campaign in the, in the summer here. But that, I think the point you're making is, is, is a really good one. The, 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 the Canadian public wants action on climate change. They are not um, 100% behind a carbon tax, not by, by any stretch of the imagination. It's actually a very big, uh, very divisive issue. So if Mr. O'Toole can find that sweet spot, convincing people he's going to do something about climate change, that it's serious and he's going he's to tackle it without having to do a carbon tax like Mr. Trudeau. Listen, a carbon tax right now on the edge of a pandemic, on the edge of an economic recovery that's very sort of, um, you know, very sensitive it's not the kind of policy that most Canadians are, are looking for right now. And if Mr. O'Toole can mm -hmm. thread that needle, he's got a real opportunity. The other thing is, it's not the most important issue right now. I mean, I know Al Gore and all his friends and Catherine McKenna, they all talk about it is the most, and then Mark Carney, uh, it's the most important issue right now. For the average Canadian, it's actually dropped down the list of importance since this pandemic hit because there's such hurt across this country uh, and substantial job loss that people are actually, it, it may have been popular, uh, but it's dropped down to like fifth or sixth spot right now. Yeah, seeing mom and dad, seeing grandma and grandpa, you know, feeling uh, relatively straightforward about my job and that I've got a future, my kids being safe. Um, these are the things that people are starting to or have been worried about for a year. And the truth is, the other thing is, I think people, you know, we, we don't give people enough credit. They're pretty smart. Like we've essentially shut down the economy. A lot of a lot of the economic sort of activity that creates a bunch of the, of the carbon. Now, the industry kept going for most of the year, but not all the year. We essentially shut down transportation. We essentially shut down plane travel. 
And yet, yeah. you know, I mean, we're, you know, so so we've essentially started from scratch on some of those things, and we're rebuilding. And, and I don't think that we've seen all of the impacts uh, long term of the you know the reduction in transportation and commuting time that we're going to see. So there are some solutions available, and we have seen that it is possible to do a third way. I want a clean economy, a clean environment for my kids. I, I don't want to go to the office five days a week either anymore. And I think that is I'm not going to do 100 flights next year. I'm going to do 20 instead. I think it is going to make some changes, and I think there are opportunities for Mr. O'Toole and any politician. Bottom line, though, these self-inflicted wounds just become a big distraction. I mean, no matter, Trudeau could literally put kittens into a kiln and burn them, and that would not be nearly as problematic as, as O'Toole getting, you know, the abortion issue, climate change issue. These things just become wedges that stick. Yeah, I mean, listen, Saturday, Friday night was a really good night for Mr. O'Toole, a terrific speech, very well received by by the media, the party membership and all those kind of things. And I, my question to some of our party members who, you know, wanted to embarrass Mr. O'Toole on Saturday and Sunday nights, the question is, is it worth it? I mean, you know, do you, do, would you rather have Mr. Trudeau for a little bit longer? Because the truth is, if we keep it up, um, that's the kind of thing that we're going to get. And uh, that's devastating for the Canadian people, devastating for the Canadian economy. Yeah, four-year majority would be a, a whole lot of pain. All right, Jason, stay tuned. We'll see what happens out of this. Thank you for joining us and uh, giving us some insight. Thanks for having me, Alex. That is Jason Leader joining us. So again, two weeks from now, will anyone be talking about this? Absolutely not. But the Liberals will make sure to remind us so they can't afford to make those mistakes again. Alex Pearson here. This is Global News Radio. We are being denied that access. We've made, we've requested access uh, to Michael Kovrig's uh, hearing repeated, repeatedly, but that access is being denied. Um, uh, as you know, uh, 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 Michael Kovrig has been detained for more than two years now. Uh, he's been arbitrarily detained, and now we see that uh, the uh, court process itself is uh, not transparent. Uh, we're uh, very troubled by this. All right. That was a voice of one of the diplomats, many of them who showed up at the trial for Michael Kovrig today. They were not allowed into either of the trials. And uh, now we're just awaiting the verdict, which will be no question of guilty. It's just a matter of when that is announced. Um, some interesting things happened today, though. The UK, US, EU and Canada have now issued sanctions against four Chinese officials for human rights violations against Uyghur Muslims. So it's not in retaliation for the inhumane treatment of the Michaels, but it is some sort of a flex of a muscle that seems to be the first of hopefully many, many more tougher measures. Because why stop now? Let us bring in Christian Luprecht, who is, of course, professor with the Royal Military College at Queen's University, also with McDonald Laurier Institute. Good to have you, sir. Hello. So a number of diplomats went to stand outside the court uh, proceedings for both Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavar. They weren't allowed in. Neither has been convicted. Is this um, a, a different kind of strategic move? Wouldn't we normally know what China's decision is going to be by now? Uh, yeah, I think this is power for the course. China has done this before. Um, and uh, the, the situation of, of this particular case is sort of put out there as, a, as unique but of course, it's not unique. Uh, it's transpired in the same fashion before, and it's simply meant for a political to exercise political leverage. Um, so in that sense, uh, this was not particularly surprising uh, in how this transpired. I think what was a little surprising and disappointing that on the one hand, the United States did send its number three at the embassy, and the number three also gave an important short speech. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, the countries that were unfortunately absent 
uh, where uh, the entire Indo-Pacific area, with the exception of Australia, so Japan, South Korea, countries that we would hope we could count on, uh, unfortunately, for political reasons, decided that this, I guess, was too risky for them uh, to stand with us in this particular situation. Yeah, well, the talks that uh, the U.S. had with China last week did not go, I think, as well as they had hoped. Um, is this the reason then for these sanctions? And then you wonder, uh, why wouldn't they go further? It's just four people that they've uh, issued sanctions. There's many, many more they could go after. Or is this just a starting point? Yeah, so... Um, right. So what we saw, I mean, in the meeting in Alaska, that was political theater on both sides, right? The Chinese are trying to figure out the Biden administration and what they can extract from the Biden administration. Uh, and the Biden administration is trying on the one hand to hold steadfast to the U.S. position. On the other hand, it's trying to demonstrate that the U.S. is playing by the rules and reinforcing that the global order will work best if everybody works together and plays by the rules. And so this is why I think the timing is not entirely accidental um, of, uh, of what we're seeing in terms of the sanctions. I do think the sanctions are being a bit misrepresented in Canada. It's not mm -hmm. like Canada really read, led the charge on these sanctions. The charge was really led by the European Union and to some extent by the US. Um, uh, so it's, it's a foreign minister's meeting by the European Union that resulted in these sanctions being levied and Canada and the US sort of uh, came along uh, with it. They are very significant. This is the first time in 30 years that the European Union has levied human rights violation sanctions. Um, and the last time was against uh, China. 1989, mm -hmm. the, uh, um, uh, the, the massacre in 1989, and it levied, uh, importantly, also a weapons embargo that is still in place to this day in terms of European countries uh, and the relationship with China. So I think this is quite significant uh, from an EU perspective, uh, even though it only involves four individuals and two organizations. Right, because I think uh, Mr. Trudeau now will kind of breathe a sigh of relief, like making it look like he's doing when I kind of see it like he's just hidden behind all the big boys. He's like, see, we're over here doing something. He's just kind of jumped on on their coattails, which, OK, fine, at least it's a start for him. But the point is he's going to have to go a lot further if, if he wants uh, to stand up for this country and the national threat, uh, security threat that China poses. I mean, you know, he still hasn't decided on Huawei. There are a lot of things that we could do as far as um, you know, kind of flexing our muscle on this, not just for the two Michaels, but certainly the way that our canola farmers have been treated, certainly, um, I think, uh, for the threat that, you know, Canadians, um, you know, are under with, uh, you know, China, I mean, maybe issue a, a, um, a travel ban, but would these sanctions and what has happened today, does that not escalate danger for Canadians? So I think the mild criticism would be that the current government has been unprincipled in its approach. The harsh criticism would be is that it's hypocritical because we always want other countries to stand with us when we yeah. have an issue, in particular with China. But when other countries have an issue with China, we're not there to support them. So the European last year, when it levied sanctions against China, uh, against two, uh, two Chinese hackers in a Chinese organization after a major uh, cybersecurity breach, Canada was nowhere to be found. In yeah. the Asia-Pacific region, when other countries are asking us to come to their help, when the Japanese, the South Koreans, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, when they're asking for us where you at least show up for the international meetings, stand with us in the South China Sea, you know, every now and then we might send a frigate or so to sail through the waters. But I think they feel let down by Canada. And so Canada also needs to step up and not simply be idiosyncratic every time when we have an issue, we need to realize 
that we need to be much more active and that we've lost a lot of favor in the region yeah. because we've been so relatively missing in action. And so we, that we can't complain that it's so hard for us to build a coalition when we need it in our interests. Yeah, because while the diplomats um, had Australia send somebody to the court uh, proceedings, whatever, well, we shouldn't even call them proceedings because it, it's just a complete fraud. Um, but you rightly point out that when it comes to the issuing of, you know, Magnitsky sanctions, none of the Indo-Pacific countries signed on and Australia did not sign on. And we really need Australia, who has, I think, been much, much more brave than any other country. You know, they've been standing up to China, but we also need them uh, to stand up with us. Yeah, I think a more concerted approach. And I think that's also what the Biden administration is trying to signal here, of course. But that means then having to coordinate the European Union and the Quad. The problem is Canada is a relatively minor player in this entire sort of undertaking. So yes, the Biden administration is trying to signal that, of course, this is a priority for them. On the other hand, like if we're not beefing up our presence and our resources, we're simply going to be drafting behind everyone else. And I think mm -hmm. part of the challenge in any times or in any type of multilateral proceeding is you don't just want to have a seat at the table. You want to ring, bring real heft and real decision-making and influence to the table. And that means yeah. you also have to show up for other people. You can't just expect them to show up for you. Yeah, true enough. And you, you've got an op-ed uh, coming out tomorrow um, in one, is it the Globe and Mail, I think? That's correct. Okay. And, and you're talking about something that doesn't get a lot of coverage. And it's that the fact is that we don't have a dedicated foreign intelligence agency, which kind of surprises me, but it doesn't. Why don't we? Um, there's a host of reasons, but basically governments have so far always felt they can get along with a fairly limited mandate that CSIS has to collect fairly limited uh, foreign human intelligence. The challenge here is that we're now the last major democracy that does not have a dedicated foreign uh, human intelligence service. So we have a signals yeah. intelligence service in CSE uh, that collects some of the data and, and other network types of, uh, types of uh, correspondence. Um, but of course, we've effectively outsourced our foreign intelligence. Yeah. And so we're relying on our allies largely to provide uh, material to us. So once again, it looks a little bit like we're free riding on others, but it also means we don't have a dedicated Canadian view on things. We don't have uh, intelligence being collected in line with the Canadian, with Canadian legislation constitution, which means it's very limited in how we can deploy it in Canada uh, for our purposes. Um, and this is at a time when, of course, we have not only many more challenges here at home from various foreign influence operations to countries basically trying to send assassins here to take sure. out people. And of course, at the, at the same time, we have serious challenges abroad, see China and see some of the other sort of regional issues where, that we are. And we're basically saying, well, we'll just rely on intelligence provided by others. That'll be good enough. And I think when Canadians' lives are at stake as it is here and when we are being exploited, it is partially due to the fact that we have inadequate intelligence to inform Canadian strategy and Canadian decision-making. And now is the time to step up and say, we will play with the major democracies because we need that dedicated foreign intelligence. Well, no kidding. With all the money laundering going on across this country, fentanyl, organized crime, a lot of it coming in from, uh, from China. I mean, just based on that alone, we should get this going, but you're right. All right, that is in the Globe and Mail tomorrow. Christian, always appreciate your um, thoughts and insight on this stuff. Always a real pleasure, Alex. Thank you. That is a Professor Christian Lubracht, who, of course, is with the Royal Military College at Queen's University, also with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. And he writes about this latest issue on uh, foreign intelligence uh, in the Globe and Mail tomorrow. Stay with us. Alex Pearson on point. This.
is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.